Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm with Dr. Luke Mays, a clinical assistant professor of pediatric hematology and oncology at the University of Utah and the co-director of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Program at Primary Children's Hospital. Dr. Mays, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Jake. Happy to be here. Appreciate the time. Love it, love it. Well, before we dive into our topic of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is referred to as ALL, uh, could you give us a, a quick background on yourself? Certainly, certainly. Um, so, like Jake said, my name's uh, Luke Mays. I'm a, a, a um, assistant professor here at the University of Utah and Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, Utah. I have a clinical practice where I take care of uh, patients with um, uh, leukemias and lymphomas, um, as well as uh, patients who have predisposition uh, to cancer uh, from a uh, uh, genetic perspective. And then uh, um, I live out here in Utah with uh, my wife and, and two uh, lovely children. Once my daughter's four and my son is, is turning six. and uh, we certainly love Utah, um, and uh, it's a great place to live, and and uh, we love the hospital, the university, and it gives us a great chance to um, affect people's lives in a positive way. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, so to, to start off, c- could you explain some of the, the physiology relating to bone marrow and blood cells that can help us better understand how leukemia works? Sure. You know, this is um, bone marrow in your blood, I think, is one of these um, uh, parts of your body that is often taken for granted. So, you know, um, bone marrow, you, ha- you have bone marrow all throughout um, your body, wherever you have a bone, um, whether it be in your pinky finger um, or your femur, um, you know, in the middle of that bone is is, um, is bone marrow. And in that bone marrow, you know, you have, you have production of, of all the the blood cells in your body and and these cells are important for many reasons um you have three primary blood cell lines you have uh your white blood cells um and these are you know your your um infection fighting cells this is your you know the basis of a lot of how you you know your immune system works and and keeps you healthy you have your um, red blood cells um often measured as hemoglobin um, red blood cells, of course, are, are very important, uh, primarily for delivering oxygen to tissues. So, you know, if you're not having, if you don't have the appropriate amount of red blood cells, you're not going to be thinking straight. You know, you, you, your, your organs are going to have to work harder and such. And so red blood cells, obviously important when those red blood cells are low. That's um, what people, when they find that out, they often call that anemia. Um, uh, and that can be for many different causes. And then the third blood cell that's important is platelets. Now, platelets are um, uh, important in um, achieving um, hemostasis or achieving uh, a cessation of bleeding. So your platelets help your help um, your uh, blood cells clot. And, and so if you imagine um, maybe you get bonked in the nose, maybe you pick your nose a little too hard, um, you'll get some bleeding from your nose. And, mm-hmm. and what kind of helps that blood blood stop first um, or one of the first things is platelets. And so you need your platelets to to clot your blood off. And, and, and those are the three blood cells that are very important. Now, with leukemia, um, this is a uh, an abnormal this, – this disease, um, this is a type of cancer um, – that is caused by the rapid production of abnormal white blood cells. So, so for whatever reason, um, there's many different known causes and unknown causes of why this happens in a, in a, in a, in a human or in a, you know, another living thing, there's other living things that could get, um, leukemia as well. But, um, so for whatever reason, your blood, your, your bone marrow starts to produce abnormal white blood cells and those abnormal white blood cells, then um, don't do their jobs correctly. So they're not going to help you fight infection. And then they kind of go out of whack and, and get, you know, they kind of lose their their ability to think straight and they're um, uh, become, you know, kind of unstoppable. And so these things start to compound and the problems and, and those leukemia cells then start to infiltrate into your bone marrow. And then that affects how you produce your red blood cells and your platelets. And so, hmm. you know, eventually, you know, leukemia, although it's a, a problem of your white blood cells, it can affect your other blood cells. Love that. Love it. And 
phenomenal, phenomenal breakdown. Uh, really helpful there. So, so we're talking about uh, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. How is that different than than other leukemias? You mentioned the 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 blood cells, the white blood cells. Other leukemias are related to then different blood cells. Then, um, no. So, good question, Jake. So, so the the there's really four main types of of leukemia uh, and many subtypes. But I would classify it. You can start by classifying it into two types. So you have acute leukemias and then you have chronic leukemias. So acute, you know, if you, you you know that's something that comes on rapidly onset. You know, how fast is rapid? We, don't really know, but typically something that comes on within, you know, a few weeks to a, a few months. Um, so you have you have your acute leukemias, and then the chronic leukemias are more of a, a chronic disease that you know probably has has um, gone on for a while, and for whatever reason, then that person becomes aware of it. So so probably present presents over a much longer period of time. So from the acute leukemias, then you have two subtypes of acute leukemias, main subtypes. So you have acute lymphoblastic or lymphocytic leukemia, that's ALL, which you just mentioned, and then there's acute myelogenous or myeloblastic leukemia, that's AML. And so the difference there is, so you do have, um, you know, the the two different words there, lymphocytic or myelogenous or lymphoblastic and, and myeloblastic. So um, those are, so you have lymph lymphocytes that um, are part of your immune system, part of the white blood cells, and then you have myelocytes. And then, so you do um, have these different types of cells that can kind of go off base, go off track, and and then you can get into either an AML, an acute myelogenous leukemia situation, or an ALL, which is acute lymphocytic leukemia. And so ALL itself um, is a completely different, although it sounds much like AML, it's a completely different disease entity. Um, it's diagnosed in similar ways, but a completely different diagnosis. And the treatment is completely different. Outcomes are completely different, different origins for that disease than AML. And so you you, you do have those separate types of, of leukemia. Um, now for ALL, uh, you know, this there's many different characteristics um, for that disease um, and how it presents. Uh, in terms of age of presentation, um, you know, what other things go along with that presentation in terms of other types of complications that you may have from, from having that disease. And then of course the treatments are much different as I said. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful clarification there and, and, uh, be able to discern, uh, the different types. So, so you'd mentioned causes earlier, known causes. Uh, what are some known causes and risk factors of ALL? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we think about causes of cancer of any type, cancer, malignancy of any type, whether it be in children or adults, this is really, you know, the, the, if you're not, you know, trillion dollar question, can you, can you tell a family, can you tell a person why they contracted, um, a cancer? And, and for the most part, it becomes difficult to give them a, an exact cause. However, there are certain, known, um, known genetic, um, mutations that a person can be born with that can lead to cancer. Now we we're learning more and more about this as, as time goes on. Um, this is fairly new information that's been discovered over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. And, and each, each year we find, find more of these things. So there are several, while most of this data on these genetic causes has um, been in patients with solid tumors, so leukemia is a is a liquid tumor, we would call it, because it's a tumor of your blood, so there has been some information trickling in over the past five years on, on um, uh, mutations in, in patients' own DNA that has led to leukemia. Now, there's there's few of these mutations um, that, that someone may have, and there's certain scenarios when you suspect that, but for the most part, you don't don't see that as often. Now, interestingly, with ALL, there's been lots of um, research and uh, uh, development in, in uh, looking at twins. So, uh, you know, there, there's there is um, there's a prominent researcher in in England, in Great Britain, Sir Mel Greaves, Doctor Sir Mel Greaves. He has has a postulated a certain hypothesis that has to do with um, uh, the immune system and how it may play a part 
in leading to to leukemia in children and and a, and a lot of his hypothesis kind of comes from a, a patient is born um and exposed to to certain things and then they're um go for a period of time you know where they're in isolation you know when you're a younger child you're going through things you know pretty you know your 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 um core group is pretty small your family maybe some relatives not you're not getting out into the community as much but then as you get older you may get exposed more to certain things and that can um, he's hypothesized that can trigger um, something in your immune system to then make you know your your bone marrow your blood cells kind of go a little bit get off and for some whatever reason in that person that can lead to the development of leukemia because again you know ALL is is a um, the most common uh, one of the most common if not the most common you could um, this may be changing over the the data that's uh, released over the last few years, uh, cancers in childhood and, and why are kids, why do children get acute lymphoblastic leukemia? Um, it's, it's still a mystery. And his, his hypothesis is one of these things that people have looked at. And so he's also looked at twin studies and, and, you know, we know that, um, at certain ages, if you have an identical twin, um, in, in one of those twins gets leukemia up to age about six, that that uh, other twin has a very strong chance of, uh, you know, a very you know strong chance of, of also developing leukemia. And we think, you know, that may have to do with germline genetics. It may have to do with placental um, uh, transfusion of, of certain factors that that come from the mother. But again, uh, a mystery and, and something that you know people have are studying and have studied for many years and still trying to figure those things out. Interesting. That's 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 fascinating to hear that the the study between twins and all those studies going on. Uh, so so when we talk about patients uh, coming in or patients showing symptoms, uh, what symptoms are are being shown for ALL? Good question. And this, this is something that you know is is one of those difficult things. And um, when you talk to families, because families are often concerned that they miss something or, or weren't sure but but in general a lot of the signs of of leukemia are signs that you could see in anyone with any sort of virus or, or some other complaint so uh so we try not to tell them to harp on it too long but but there are certain things that we definitely see more often in leukemia so bone pain so people often complain of their legs hurting their arms hurting um when they come in now, this is something that kids of all ages experience as they're growing and stuff. So it's not something that, you know, would alarm me particularly, but again, this is just a common complaint and you would, you would, maybe you could visualize that or expect that as we just talked about, this is a disease of the bone marrow. Your, your blood cells are going wild and in those bones that I said that, you know, are are all throughout your body. And if they're, you know, something's proliferating too much, growing too much, it's going to cause a little discomfort. So bone pain is something we often see, um, uh, swelling of lymph nodes, we call it lymphadenopathy. So you can get, um, uh, you know, swollen lymph nodes, or some people call it swollen glands. Um, you know, this is again, just something where, you know, these, um, these are blood cells that are being filtered out and your lymph nodes are involved in that. And then, you know, they can be proliferating. You can get better, bigger lymph nodes. You get this lymphadenopathy. You can also have fevers. Again, fever is very, very generalized symptom as we've come to know, um, uh, within the current, um, uh, pandemic era, but, but fever is something that we, uh, certainly have, um, we see, um, and this is likely due to, you know, just these cancer cells producing an inflammatory response in the body. And, and, you know, that's what fever is. It's just a, you know, it's an inflammatory response, a generalized inflammatory response that your body's expressing. Um, some other things that, that we see, again, all have to do with some of the low blood counts. We talked about, you know, low, low red blood cells can cause your organs not to work as well, can cause you to be more tired, so cause more fatigue. You can, you know, you get your color from, from your red blood cells, so it can cause you to be a, a little bit more pale. Um, platelets, we talked about, those can be low. You know, you can have more nosebleeds. You can have bleeding when you're brushing your teeth. Um, those are things that um, we often see as well. And then, you know, like I said, your, your organs aren't work, working as well. So you can get a little, your liver and your spleen could get a little bit bigger, although this isn't something you see very often, but certainly something that, that has uh, come about. But so so in general, I would say lots of, of nonspecific symptoms, but certainly a pattern that we see in patients. Um, who present. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I'd read that it, it 
ranged all over the place from being in an ER with crazy pain to a regular fever. So that's interesting that uh, it's good to con- confirm that and, and fascinating that and I, it, it ranges it, like that. And I should follow up to that, but that's a great point, Jake. So you can definitely present with much more severe symptoms like, you know, a, a terrible fear. You could be really sick. You could have a bacterial infection that could you know, be life threatening. You could have a you know, stroke. Sometimes patients present with strokes. Um, so you can have very severe presentations or, you know, it, it runs the gamut, as you said. Love it. Love it. Uh, so, so now from symptoms and, and you have a patient that comes in or, or you refer to patient from a primary care physician, uh, how is then someone diagnosed? Great. Yeah. So, you know, again, it all kind of comes back to the blood. So patient comes in with some symptoms, uh, they typically would get a blood count, whether you're expecting leukemia or not, but sometimes physicians would wait and see, you know, if someone's just complaining of acute kind of fever, acute discomfort in their bones or something, you're not going to just get a blood count right away. But eventually those symptoms persist. Someone would order a blood count. Uh, This blood count is called a a CBC or stands for a complete blood count. And that gives you the numbers that we talked about, plus many more numbers that kind of break down the, the, the white blood cells into certain categories, the red blood cells get you lot gives you lots of, of different statistics about your red blood cells and as well as your platelets. So you get an idea from from those blood cells if you have anything abnormal going on. Now it's important to keep in mind, again, this is a disease of the bone marrow, um, which and which produces your blood. And so um, most of the time patients do have blood cell abnormalities that you can get from a regular blood draw. However, there are certain cases where um, the blood can appear maybe not normal, but not something that you would say, oh, this is leukemia. Um, and so it, in those cases, sometimes you do need to do a bone marrow. So so first we would test the blood, see if you have any blood cell abnormalities. And if we're concerned, then we would, we would get a sample of your bone marrow, uh, of a person's bone marrow. Um, and that's uh, basically done. It's a minimally invasive procedure that you're able to um, access someone's bone marrow, typically around their hips, um, while, uh, and, and get a little bit of that sample. You look at it under the microscope. Um, those cells, um, leukemia cells, have a certain appearance. Um, and we call that, uh, in general, we call these blasts. Um, and, and this makes us a little bit worried. You can have normal amounts of blasts, and these are very low, but typically leukemia have much higher numbers of blasts. Um, and then we're able to do, you know, we look at it with our eyes, of course, that's the important part. Then we're able to do more sophisticated testing, um, in measuring some of the proteins that are expressed on blasts. So we know that there's certain proteins that, um, acute lymphoblastic or leukemia, ALL cells express. Um, we do this in the, in the United States, um, using multi-parameter flow cytometry. So this is a, you know, a specialized test that, you know, large labs have and can do for you and, and can get the result within, you know, 12 hours and, and really give you the exact kind of diagnosis. This patient has this type of leukemia. Um, that's a, you know, a much more technologically sound way than what we had done in the past before we had some of these uh, fancy uh, machines um, uh, when we would look at it with our eyes. So we can really classify them pretty closely with this um, flow cytometry test. And then um, we did talk a little bit about genetics, uh, but you know those things uh, are important to know because that's how we get into classifying risk. We look at the, the, the genetics of the leukemia cells, not of the patient. So we know there's certain changes in leukemia cells, um, and uh, those also help us further classify it, the ALL that the patient may have. Amazing. And flow cytometry, flow cytometry, I'm saying that correctly? And that's so right. That's right. Mm-hmm. How how often is that the the standard now, or is that more used specifically, or how often are? Because uh, I'm curious about how often you use a bone marrow test, or if you're able to do it just based off the blood, or if that's every time, and uh, how often you use the flow cytometry test. Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, I would say to your question, to your first one, you know, it is standard of care to do flow cytometry. Now, if someone ha- comes in with a blood count and we know that there's abnormal cells, you can also see blasts in their blood most of the time. And we can say, okay, this is this is concerning for leukemia. We look at these blasts. It's very hard to tell with 
the naked eye whether something's a myeloblast as an AML or a lymphoblast as an ALL. And so we can typically give a good educated guess, but nowadays with flow cytometry, we know that these the certain proteins on the ALL blasts are different than the AML, and so we can send that test. And, and we would often do that on the peripheral blood if we if we see a abnormal blood cells um, that are concerning for blasts. We could do that on the peripheral blood. But to your point, uh, invariably, we would also do a bone marrow test. Um, a little bit to confirm the diagnosis. You know, we, we don't necessarily need to do another flow cytometry test, although we might. But a lot of the, the genetic studies that I was just getting into, they're more he- easily done off of the bone marrow, huh. um, typically. Okay. You can also do those on blood, but but on bone marrow is really kind of the standard. Um, and then again, you want to you wanna get to the, the, the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is in the bone marrow. Um, we haven't got into it all. At, at all yet, but you know the research kind of aspect of this. You know, getting the bone marrow is is a big part of some of the research that we often think about doing and and, and finding out new things and, and new treatments, new ways to diagnose things, and that's typically done on bone marrow cells. And um, so we typically, to answer your question, we typically do do both. Flow cytometry is definitely done; it is standard of care in um, Europe and in Asia. Uh, they they don't use the same type of flow cytometry that we that we use. They use a different um, method methodology, but it's similar and it gets at the the question the same way. Fascinating, fascinating, and amazing. It, the The advances in in medical technology are amazing and just always moving forward. So, a beautiful thing. So then, how do you move forward in in treating uh, your patients once they are diagnosed? Great question. So this is you know we get the diagnosis. Um, we know that the patient has ALL, um, and then you know we, we talk about um, uh, several features and several things you know that we go through um, to try and give the patient, the family, an idea of where we're going. And so, I would say um, there there are a few aspects to this. So, um, first, we have a way of classifying patients. Um, at diagnosis. So there's several different categories, several different things that a patient comes in, they have leukemia, you know, okay, this patient right now is is either a high risk patient or a standard risk patient. And this is in the pediatric young adult population. This is kind of how we think about this. The adult population thinks about it a little bit differently, but for pediatrics, we think about, you know, how old is the patient? A certain age, um, certain ages, so this is ages one to nine, these are called standard risk patients. These patients um, you know, it have historically just, you know, done better for whatever reason. The other thing that we look at, um, is the white blood cell count. So a normal white blood cell count is typically depending on the lab, the technique they're using between five and 15,000. That's the normal white blood cell count. Now, if you have a white blood cell count above 50,000, then that patient is a high risk patient. If, if you're less than 50,000, again, standard risk patient. So if you meet either above 50,000, or if you're or if you're 10 years of age or older or less than one, then you're not necessarily a standard risk patient and you're a high risk patient. So we know that right away and we can talk to that family or that patient in the, in the correct context. And then there's, there's other information that, that we get kind of throughout the, the treatment. And we can get to that um, after I talk a little bit about the treatment. And so, mm-hmm. so we, um, if you're, if you, we talk about treatment of cancer and, and really, you know, when I talk to, to trainees about this, you know, it's, you think of the, the, the three main modalities we use to treat cancer in this country and in the, in the world, I guess. So you have surgery. We don't use surgery and leukemia, right? It's a blood disease. You can't really suck out everyone's blood. That wouldn't work out too well for them. So surgery isn't going to work. Radiation. So you can use radiation in leukemia. It used to be used much more often, but we, we rarely use it. And I'll get into, um, a, uh, where we use it in those situations. But the mainstay of treatment in an ALL is chemotherapy, you know, chemotherapy, IV, oral medications. Um, this is, um, uh, uh, you know, the backbone of, of chemotherapy treatment. And so, um, and then to add on to this, which I haven't mentioned yet, so ALL can hide places, which is important to know. So it can hide in several places uh, in your body besides your bone marrow and, uh, and consequently your blood. So 
there's two places it can hide in boys, one place is in girls. One place in girls. The, the major place it hides is your cerebral spinal fluid or your central nervous system. So leukemia can go into your central nervous system, hide out there, and it hides there because you know it kind of protects um, the body. The it's it protects itself from some of the chemo. So, so some of the chemotherapy isn't able to penetrate this special barrier between your your central nervous system and the rest of your body. Hmm. And so we know that. And and, and why I mentioned that is because we also give chemotherapy in the spinal fluid to kind of get around that. So we, we will do, um, regular lumbar punctures, um, which, uh, you know, we access the patient's, um, spinal fluid with a needle. We get a sample to make sure there's no leukemia there. And then we give drug directly in there. So, so that's a, a certain, um, twist to treatment and something you always have to consider in a patient, um, with ALL. The other where we would, we would use if someone does have severe disease in their, um, uh, central nervous system, um, which we call the CNS, then they would get radiation sometimes in this area. And that's really the only time we would ever use radiation uh, nowadays in, in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Now, uh, as ending ending this aside, the other place it can hide in boys is, is the testicles. So you can get um, leukemia that hides out there. Again, it can be protected. There's certain things that protect it from the chemo that you're giving. And so you always have to be mindful of this in your, in your um, male population of patients. So back to the treatment then. So, you know, again, oral and IV chemotherapy along with intrathecal chemotherapy and the spinal fluid is the, is the way we treat it. Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of, it constitutes of, of a cocktail of medicines that we've kind of perfected over the last several decades through collaboration with um uh, clinical trial groups in this country and all throughout the world. And we've really kind of maximized a lot of what we do with these, um, these chemotherapeutic medicines that are cytotoxic to the, to the cancer cells, but also to your body. And we've worked out, you know, this, these regimens that, um, have really, um, benefited patients. And so the first month of treatment we call induction, um, and that's kind of standard maybe uh, across many different cancers, but induction chemotherapy, this, uh, you know, de- will depend on your risk classification, as I said, but it, it really constitutes about 28 days of treatment um, with oral and, and IV medications. Um, and then at the end of that 28 days, you see how you respond uh, to your to your disease. And so, you know, we, we have these regimens, we talk about them with families, and then and we know what we're going to do, you know, for that first month, patients diagnosed, we know we can give them that roadmap, which is what we call it for that first month. And then uh, the, the rest of the time, you know, we talk about the things that will affect the treatment after the first month. And so that's where I said, you know, the genetics of leukemia can affect that. That can make your treatment a little bit easier. It can make your treatment a little bit harder. If you have a, if you have a change in your leukemia, that, that makes your disease a little bit more worrisome. And then it, as in every cancer and, and has bared out, you know, throughout the years of looking at this, the response to treatment is so incredibly important in your first month of, of therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia for some solid tumors, you get three months, but for leukemia is really, it's your response after the first month is so important. And if you respond and you can get, you know, yourself into remission, then that can, that really bodes well for you. And so those are things that we also talk about over that first month of induction therapy. Love that. Love that. Yeah. So I, I, I remember reading, um, about how you have the induction period and then there's three other stages. Uh, I believe there was consolidation, uh, reintensification and and maintenance. Uh, correct me if I was wrong on any of those. Um, I I am curious as to when you change regimens versus how often you stay with the same regimen. Um, and what some of those different regimens are. Uh, I read about hyper-CVAD, uh, which I'm not sure how common or uncommon that is. Uh, some of the classic uh, chemo, uh, like vincristine, prednisone, uh, doxo, rubicin. Uh, what, when are you using which? And, and you, you, know, you mentioned cocktail is a great uh, word to use. When are you using which cocktails per se? Great question. So, um, you know, in, in, um, pediatrics, we have in the pediatric young adult population, we've had a, we have really established kind of the, the gold standard of treatment for kids with, and, and adolescents with, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which 
actually the adult population has tried to translate into um, into their protocols. It just becomes mm. a little bit harder because adults, as we know, have other toxicity. You have other uh, morbidities um, that young children don't or adolescents don't, and they're able to that they're not able to tolerate what we can give younger people. And so, but they've tried to adapt based on some of the great outcomes that we have. So, so back to what we were, we were talking about. So you have a standard risk patient, you know, that patient's standard risk based on their age, either between one and nine and their white count less than 50,000. So for this group of patients, we would prescribe what we call a three drug induction. And that three drug induction consists of, um, three drugs plus the intrathecal chemotherapy that we talked about. So vincristine, like you mentioned, so vincristine, we, that's, that's a staple of therapy. Um, this is a microtubule inhibitor. Um, it's fairly well tolerated. It does have some side effects, which we can get into later if we want to talk about those, but, mm-hmm. um, you get that every week. So that's a once a week medication for the first four weeks. So, um, the other, um, medication, uh, that you get, and that's an IV medication. The other IV medication you get is called pegasperginase or pegasperginase. Okay. So this is a, um, a a newer medicine, if you call the the early 1970s new, <laughs> and it, it just shows you that most of the medicines we are using nowadays are pretty old. But um, this is a medicine that that we we've, we've been um, uh, we've been employing um, since then in one way, shape, or form. So. Um, uh, it's uh, depletes asparagine. Um, this is an essential amino acid. Uh, your leukemia cells need this to survive. It's interesting as your body has adapted a way to produce asparagine itself. So it actually gives a little bit of selective toxicity using this drug. Although again, it, it can harm your normal cells as well. And that's only given once. So that's given on day four of induction for this three drug induction therapy. Um, and then the last drug, and, and perhaps the most important drug, although a lot of people don't think of it as a chemotherapy even because we use it in a lot of other places, is is the steroids. So we either give prednisone um, or dexamethasone, kind of depending on age for our induction patients. But, uh, you know, steroids are used, and this isn't the steroids to, to bulk you up. Jason, don't get any ideas here. So this is the, <laughs> this is the, 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 this is the steroid to, to um, treat yourself. And so for for a medical condition and so it's used in autoimmune disease people with asthma take steroids sometimes um you know people uh you know uh with you know know, systemic inflammation for whatever reason may get prescribed steroids steroids are used throughout time and they're actually again relating to what we're going through now with the, the current pandemic steroids have been shown to um help people who are really sick with with um SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And so, so steroids are broadly used in lots of different areas, but for leukemia, you know, this is something that was discovered, I believe in the, in the fifties that, um, uh, that these drugs, these steroids were toxic to, to, to lymphoblasts, to leukemia cells. And, and since then, since we started using steroids really is when we turn the tide of it being actually able to get people into remission and eventually cure people. And so steroids are taken typically in a stand, in a standard risk patient, they'd be taken for 28 days um, across the board. And, and that's, they take them twice a day. It's an oral medication. Um, and again, it is chemotherapy in this sense. And it's important for people to realize that, um, you know, this is a drug that uh, in general isn't thought of as a chemotherapy because you know, people use it a lot for a lot of other reasons, but they don't use it at the high doses that we do for, for leukemia treatment. And they don't use it for typically as long straight away, you know, 28 days in a row. And, and they can lead to, they have certain side effects that are certainly troublesome for families. And, and mm-hmm. so that's a standard risk therapy. The only difference, if, if a patient has a, a higher white count, you know, 50,000 or above, or is 10 years or older, then they would get an additional drug. And we call that a four drug induction. So you get all those three drugs plus, um, what's called an anthracycline. So this is a type of chemotherapy, um, doxorubicin or donorubicin. So this is a medicine that uh, you would get once a week for four weeks in your induction treatment. Um, and again, it's a more of a classic chemotherapy. It has certain side effects. I'm not getting into that, but uh, you know, those are the those are the, so you have a three drug induction or a four drug induction. Those are the kind of the standard kind of induction regimens that we use in, in the United States. Um, and then to the second part of your question, when would you change a regimen? So this is a great question. Um, 
and, and why you have to be diligent with, with families and patients to tell you, like I said, we're not, we don't have all the information right when we start treatment because this is an acute disease. You don't want to wait for all the information. It can take a week or two to get it. And so you start this treatment, you get information um, on the genetics of the leukemia. And if you do have um, a, uh, a genetic change that changes some of the classification or potentially Nowadays, with some of the newer medicines we have, you can target a certain genetic change, and this would be um, in, a, in a, a particular case of Philadelphia chromosome, you know, a 922 translocation. So this is a change that we know can happen in patients with certain leukemias. Um, ALL, can it can happen. It's pretty rare, but it can. And you can add an additional drug to target this genetic mutation that is causing these leukemia cells to proliferate. And so in those cases, we would add addition, an additional medication. Um, during induction uh, to try and, you know, induce a remission. Love that. Love that. Yeah. And yeah, really, really cool to be able to put, you put that together really well and connected those dots for me and that'll that'll be valuable to listen to again and again, again, to cement it. Uh, So so you mentioned, uh, well, before I ask about Philadelphia chromosome, uh, because you've done some research in that department and I am uh, curious about specifics there. Uh, but when it comes to sort of the overall uh, cocktail of, of chemotherapy drugs, why is it that we have to use multiple chemotherapies to get the desired results we want? And if you already answered that, forgive me, but that is something I'm curious about. Oh, great question. So this is, I'm a history buff. I love history in all ways, shape, and form. I'm For my free time, I read about um American history, you might like world history too, but love it. from that, then I love the, I love the history of, of where we come in, in my profession, which is um, pediatric cancer and particular pediatric leukemia treatment. So if you go back, um, you can find stories of when patients had these symptoms that we talked about in the beginning and no one knew what was going on with them. And, um, you know, it was just tragic kind of stories and, and no one survived this disease. And, and, and this was, you know, back to the 19th century, you find some of these cases um, more um, better described um, than, but you, you can even go farther back and, and suspect that this is what's happening in some of the older, um, you know, middle age times. But uh, so, you know, fast forward then to, to the 1950s and, and people, um, you know, are, you know, there's more talked about with this. People are, are, you know, for a long time, cancer was thought of as like a, some sort of a curse, you know, no one wanted to talk about it. It was one of those things families hid. They, if their child had it, they certainly would hide their child. They don't want, you know, people thought it was contagious. There was all these things going around, but, you know, as time went on, you know, in the early 1900s, you kind of realized it wasn't. And then there was really a a push um, in the scientific community to try and figure out how to treat these patients with this blood cancer. Cause if you, if you, um, Again, another plug for reading about medical history. The Emperor of Maladies um, uh, was a is a Pulitzer Prize winning book uh, re- uh, book written by Siddhartha Mukherjee, um, who talks a lot about the history of cancer care in it. And and so, classically, people think of cancer as solid tumors, right? You know, breast cancer, um, lung cancer, uh, colon cancer. These things can be surgically removed, and then you just watch and hope it doesn't come back. And that's kind of what happened in the early days. But you couldn't do that with leukemia, right? You can't remove. We went over that. You can't remove someone's blood. And so there was nothing to do. And so you, you had to try and find something else to get rid of it. And radiation um, was a thought, but you know, you can't, again, you, you radiate someone's bone marrow, they'll never come back. And so you have to, um, you have to, you know, stress the bone marrow to a certain extent, but then allow it to kill these cells, but then allow it to build back up. And so medications were then the next idea. And um, believe it or not, you know, I'm no fan of conflict or war, but but if you want to, again, look at some of these things, the advancements that happened because of wars, one of them was into chemotherapy. So in World War One, mm-hmm. you know, they used nitrogen mustard gas. They found out um, with this horrible, terrible chemical weapon that it, it ablated people's bone marrows. And then they thought, okay, well, what if we didn't use it as much, you know, uh, to the certain extent they were using for, could you kill leukemia cells with this? And people started to experiment with these things. And, and then, you know, you know, again, fast forward, you know, a few more decades and, and people are looking at other medicines, you're getting drug discovery programs, looking at drugs that people have known about like steroids um, to see if they, you know, will affect leukemia cells. And so basically what you got down to was, you know, we found out there were certain medicines that 
heart leukemia. And in the early 60s, um, uh, you know, people were experimenting with, with, with uh, leukemia drugs, but they were only using one of these drugs. And it would seem to help them, right? But it wouldn't, it wouldn't make it all gone. And then maybe, maybe in one patient, it did make it all gone. And then they would stop the medicine and it would just come back. And then you couldn't get it to go back. You couldn't get that patient back into remission. And so, you know, it was a, a slow process of learning. Okay, well, then maybe we'll add two drugs and see kind of what this does. And so, you know, in it, in, and on and on and on. And, and so now, you know, into the, into the 21st century, we have developed these certain cocktails, that, as we mentioned, that, you know, seem to induce a remission in a patient to, a, to a, an appropriate degree without causing them to not be able to produce bone marrow again so they can still recover their function but you can get rid of that leukemia fun- the, the leukemia aspect of the of, of the disease and so um, each of these drugs may work at work at a different part of the cell cycle so you have a cell cycle if you remember from biology and um, not something we stress you know too much in our clinical care but but a lot of these backbones looked at the cell cycle and, and where you're affecting um, cells in a, at a certain area of their growth and maturation and, and kind of hitting each one of those areas um, with a different drug um, at a different time point. And, and, and through that, you know, kind of combination synergy that you see with these medications um, is where we kind of maximize um, uh, the treatment that we use. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Love, love how you walk through the history too. Been, uh, been listening to a podcast about surgical history and I'm with you there on history uh, so, so when we talk about the Phil, uh, ALL, uh, relating to the Philadelphia chromosome, uh, Philadelphia chromosome positive, Philadelphia chromosome like, uh, can you walk us through sort of that, uh, subtype of ALL and, and what you do to, to treat it? For sure. So, um, you know, Philadelphia chromosome or, or the Philadelphia translocation, this is a, um, really a landmark discovery, I think, within um, cancer itself and um, really kind of opened our eyes up to some of the things that can be possible and, and really has gotten a lot of people excited about this new wave of, of targeted treatment um, and uh, molecular oncology. So, so what this is, this is a, this is a specific um, genetic abnormality in chromosome 22 of, of leukemia cancer cells. So, um, this is um, because there's a translocation. So, so you get a translocation um, of genetic material from chromosome bet- between chromosome nine and chromosome twenty-two. So again, we have forty-six chromosomes, and you know, you two uh, one cop- two copies of each, and you kind of go through. Um, uh, you can look at your chromosomes. You do a certain blood test. The, the pathologist can look at this and and um, the leukemia cells don't necessarily follow those rules of 46. You know, they can have multiple chromosomes again because they're kind of gone, gone off base. But because they don't follow these rules, they can have chromosome material from one put onto another. So, um, and, and, and this, you know, for many, most leukemias do have some sort of a, a, a genetic change like this, a genetic translocation. For the most part, we don't know exactly what they all do, but there are certain um, classifications of these translocations, which we do. And so we found out, it was discovered that this gene, so this chromosome chain, this, and it can, which contains this fusion gene that we, we term BCR hyphen ABLE1. So um, the ABLE1 gene of chromosome nine um, is, uh, is, you know, put on the region, the BCR gene of the chromosome 22. And this is kind of where you get, um, uh, this, this change that then produces an uncontrollable growth. So like we talked about in the beginning, the very first thing we're talking about, you know, these, these cells are haywire. They're kind of going all, um, they're, they're not following the rules and, and why aren't they following the rules? It's because they, they're not, their, their genes are, aren't, they're not made correctly. And so they're, they're, uh, you know, they have this, um, this uncontrollable, um, switch, you know, that's turned on and it won't, you know, and it's driving this proliferation. And, and so some leukemias have this that we know of, and some probably have, we don't know of. And, and, but this one in particular, what was, what was found out is that this, this is really a driver. So 
there's always, you know, something that's driving whatever process that's going on in your body, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing. And if you can identify, you know, one of a driver of whatever process it may be and, and turn that switch off or, you know, put the brakes on it, then, you know, you could, you know, potentially solve that issue. And, and, and with this particular change, um, you know, Brian Drucker, who is a researcher in Oregon, um, worked on this and, and, and found that you could you could use some of these compounds that that have been discovered to uh, to turn this signal off, and um, these uh, sig- these these uh, these compounds are, are called tyrosine kinase inhibitors and or TKIs, and um, this this B- this Philadelphia translocation, this BCR able gene fusion, this drives um, proliferation. Um, and if you, if you inhibit this proliferation with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, you can, you can, um, turn the signal off and, and for the most part, it's really been exciting on what, what we can do with these medicines. So classically, you know, not to get too, too into the weeds here, but this change mm-hmm. was found in, in chronic, in chronic myelogenous leukemia or CML, but we found out it's also an ALL. And so CML is a different entity, which kind of we, we didn't really go into, but it's a different thing. But but you can use that drug for this. You can you can also use this drug for, for ALL, but ALL is a little different because it's not just this change. You know, you have other things going on, and so you still continue to need to use the general chemotherapies that we talked about. But you can add this on to those those other ones and um, in hopes of, of producing a greater emission because we do know with patients with ALL, with this change, they historically didn't do as well. So they, you know – they they historically didn't get into remission. They historically didn't respond as well to therapy, and um, you know they didn't have as good of outcomes. Now that we have this these new med- this new medicine, these new medicines, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we're finding out that we can actually do much better with our cure rates. Not not to the extent where where they have the same survival as patients who don't have this change, but we're you know we're getting there and we're and, and we're making progress here. Phenomenal, phenomenal. That's so cool. Yeah, I. Uh... Yeah, I, I looked into that a little bit and know someone that was on uh, one of those tyrosine uh, kinase inhibitors. So fascinating and amazing about the innovation in medicine. Uh, so before we wrap up, and so grateful for your time, it's been such a, a wonderful overview of, of leukemia and ALL. Um, I'm just going to listen to this over and over again to cement uh, everything. Uh, where do you see... Uh, what do you see moving forward in the future of treating ALL? Uh, what sort of research is being done to to help further innovate in this field? Yeah, um, you know, I think there's there's a few themes. The, the themes I talk to people about are pretty simple. You know, there's a there's groups of patients who don't do as well, and those patients, you know, we're really trying to maximize. We're, we're turning up the notch and trying to maximize what they're getting to make them do better. And that that's pretty intuitive, right? I mean, I, someone's not doing as well, well you, you do more things to try and make it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're still in that phase with this group of patients, right? And that's what, you know, since the 19, whatever, the 1950s, since this all started, that's what we've been doing. But over the last, and we can get to that in a little bit, but over the last 10, 10 or so years, um, as we've gotten so good at treating acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So if you're looking at all comers, which is just a, you know, again, if this were a, an adult cancer, a primarily adult cancer, people would be talking about this, um, you know, all over the news and it'd be something that, you know, it would be an astounding thing that people you know really can't wrap their heads around. So the 1950s, no one survived ALL. Nobody did. And now, 70 years later, we're to the point where we cure 90% of patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Wow. So in 70 years, we've, we, we've gone from zero to 90. In it. And really, that's it's through a lot of the collaboration that I mentioned briefly, but, um, you know, and, and, and trying to find out these right combinations. But, but this is what we've been able to do. So now with these type of cure rates, and again, you know, 90% is not perfect, but, um, you know, we feel like this is, this is a pretty high bar you know, that, that we've reached. And now there are certain populations of, of ALL patients that have 99% chance of survival. So now for these populations, we're trying to dial back treatment. And this is a new paradigm. You know, we haven't really been doing that, um, you know, 
because it's rightfully so, you know, seven years ago, no one survived. And so, but now we're dialing back some treatment to try and decrease some of the toxicities we're causing these families well, and these patients. Because while, you know, again, curing cancer is the number one thing. That's why I went into this field. This is why we do what we do. But you also have to think about the late effects, the side effects that these patients have, both physically and mentally. And so if you can decrease some of those while maintaining those high cure rates, then this is what we should be doing. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. So, so with these higher risk patients, though, we have new therapies, you know, um, you hear a lot in the news about um, immunotherapies, we've talked primarily just about classical cytotoxic uh, chemotherapies. So these are old drugs, uh, things that we uh, have known about for a long time, you know, now with with the technology that's out there, and with uh, the brilliant minds, um, and the resources that people are able to work with, we're able to use uh, immune therapy. So this is more targeted treatments um, to certain aspects of a leukemia cell, um, uh, even harnessing a patient's own immune cell, immune cells with, with what you may have heard of called chimeric, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. So these, these are new type medicines that really have been come about over the last five, uh, maybe you know up to 10 years, but, but really over the last five is where they kind of blown up. And, and these medicines, because they're you know more targeted, you know you're not going to get the toxicities, and you may get you know even greater effects if they're if you're just targeting those cells. And so, um, we're starting to use a lot of those therapies in patients who have relapsed. We've recently put some of those newer medicines up front into patients. Uh, we haven't decreased any of those. You know these are for you know higher risk patients, but we haven't decreased any of those cytotoxic medicines. But I think you know if we can find ways with these more targeted medicines to produce the same cure rates, we can start trying to dial back on some of the cytotoxic medicines, even for patients who, you know, may be, you know, not high risk, but, you know, you know, a little bit higher than a, than a standard risk patient. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, and new medicines, uh, new therapies are coming um, uh, more and more, and, you know, every year we're getting, we're getting new, new things. And I, I think the last thing I'll say is we're also learning more about the genetics as I talked about it. I think, this disease is coming from somewhere. It would be great to tell a patient who came in with ALL, this is why you have ALL. This is why, and this is what families, you know, although it doesn't um, mean much for their treatment, right? It sure means much for their, a lot for their psyche. And, and I think that, um, you know, giving someone a reason why something's happened to them in their life, especially as significant as a childhood or um, young adult cancer diagnosis, um, that goes beyond you know, words of what I can say, what that means to a family. And so we're learning more about what's causing the therapies and from a genetic or causing the cancer with, from a genetic perspective. And we're also, you know, again, it's, it's about risk classifying patients. If you can say a patient comes in, this patient has a, you know, no chance. If you just give them the minimal therapy, no chance of relapsing. We need to know that. And is there ways to tell that in, in leukemia genetics? On the other term, if this patient's going to come in, we know this patient has a very poor chance of survival and we need to do everything we can right away to try and um um get that get that patient into remission and then you know uh keep them that way and and so that initial risk classification is incredibly important and something we're continuing to 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 work on and modify and and update as we learn more about leukemia amazing amazing i love it well dr mace thank you so much for your time that was a phenomenal overview of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, and thanks for all you do and in, in treating patients and, and everything. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate the time so much. Um, appreciate everyone, uh, uh, all your listeners as well.